0: You know, we have a, a tendency to kind of put people in groups, and this is something that that, that Facebook is already catching on to. You know, you can put family in lists. You can put, you know, your friends in different lists, kind of how you know them. This is something Google Plus kind of hangs their hat on. You, you put people in, in different circles. I remember when I first started using Google Plus, I didn't, didn't really know which circle I should put people in, so I had circles inside of circles inside of circles and just smaller and smaller concentric circles, and eventually I just quit using it. But this is something that, that Seinfeld really saw in the 90s. Now, I'm not saying Seinfeld was this prophetic show, but this is something that George Costanza really hit on and, and really saw as something vitally important for him in his life. See, there's one particular episode where he has... He has friends in circles, so he's got his, his, his co-worker friends, he's got his, his, his family over here, which if, if you watched any part of the show, we want to keep them in a very tight, very small circle. We don't want them melding with other people because it's, it's chaos. And then we've got all the sundry relationships that this character had. Now there's this one episode where he's got, he's got his friend groups overlapping, and he goes to Jerry, he says, Jerry, I don't, want, I don't know what to do, worlds are colliding, Jerry, Worlds are colliding. I can't the, keep these people apart. And this was a big problem for him because he wanted to keep people in their own, their own circles. He wanted to keep people in their own little, little deal. Well, whether or not we do this purposely, this is kind of the way our lives end up. I mean, you spend, if, if you're in a traditional work environment, you spend a lot of time, you know, 40 plus hours every week with the same people over and over and over again, likely having some of the same conversations over and over and over again. So Monday morning rolls around, you go get a cup of coffee in the break room, and they're like, well, how's your weekend? Oh, yeah, it was good. How was yours? Oh, that it was good. Well, big plans this week? Well, you know, I thought I'd work, you know, 40, 50 hours here. Oh, okay. Big plans this coming weekend? You are looking forward to it? You're like, well, it's, man, it's 8.05, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And then, you know, you go home, and you have your your wife and your family, or you have your, your friends that you get together with after work is done, and And it's a completely separate conversation with them. It's, well, how was work today? Well, you know, it was work. Okay, yeah. How was your work? Well, you know, it was work too. And and you have this conversation over and over and over again. And you have different conversations with different groups of people. Now, as we turn our attention to, to 1 Timothy, we're reminded that Paul is writing to a group of people in Ephesus. And as we've worked our way through this letter, we're starting to get the idea and the picture that their problem is, is that they saw themselves in some sense of being exclusive. You remember that these are people that were, they were tied up with myths and endless genealogies? This gives us the idea that they're, they're likely some type of Jewish background believers. And so they saw themselves and they saw this unfolding of how salvation worked, of how God was at work, of being something exclusive to those people who had Jewish background. They had some type of Jewish faith in their background. And so they saw it something as being specifically for them, something they held on to tightly, something they protected with, with all diligence. And you remember last week, Paul offered up a word of correction. He offered up this word where he told Hymenaeus and Alexander. He said, "Look, you guys are—you have rejected what it is to have a good conscience. You are moving against faith." And he says, "He says I'm going to hand them over to Satan." Now, it, it, there wasn't a transfer that took property, where Paul marches them to outside of the church. He's like, "Satan, here, these are y'all's. This, these are yours now. I'm going to go back inside to the safety of the church." No, in sense, all Paul did was say, "You guys are no longer welcome to fellowship with us." You guys have this persistent sin in your life which is is recognized as rejecting a good conscience. They're extending something beyond the gospel. As Paul said, until you're ready to repent, until you're ready to move on from that, you can't can't have fellowship with us anymore. See, Paul has, has dealt with it in the particulars, but now he moves again to talk about it in the broad stream of understanding of what then should we believe? How then should we act? So I'm going to read for us the first seven verses of chapter 2. I invite you to read along with me. Paul writing, he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, ...who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." Now, there are those who read 1 Timothy and and what they're doing is when they read it, they're reading it from the lens and from the grid work of saying, how do we do church? And so they come to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and they say, look, I want to start a church, I want to plant a church, this is my grid, this is my instruction manual for how to do that. And and everything else that doesn't fit within one of those grids, they toss out and they say, well, that's not super helpful for me because I want to start, I want to plant, I I want to fix a church. And so they take this book these three books, and they shove it through that grid work. Now, there are things that don't line up neatly inside there. There are things that don't line up neatly inside there. Now, church discipline, that lines up neatly inside there. But as we look at this, we see a broader implication for what it's like to live as a Christian. Not just specific to how church should be run, but specifically, or more broadly rather, how we should live as Christians. So Paul writes to this group who's really struggling with who's the gospel for? He writes to this people who are really struggling with did God die for me and for my friends and the people that see it just like we do? Or, I mean, who did who did God die for? How far does salvation extend? So Paul frames the conversation beautifully. I mean, if that's the question they're asking themselves, then Paul's first response is man, pray. Paul says, I urge you, first of all then, I urge you, and he says, I urge you to do four things. That you offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And so as we look at this list, these broadly all deal with with the subject of prayer. I mean, they all deal with with some facet of understanding of how we communicate with God. But the first, as we look at it, is is this idea of, of supplication, of offering supplication. Now they're all centered on, rest on, offering supplications for who? Well, the text tells us pretty clearly it's it's not just for them. It's not just for the people that dress like they do, talk like they do, have the same very narrow family tree without a whole lot of branches, but it is for everybody. It's for everyone. They're supposed to pray for everyone, for all people. And so when we come to this idea of supplication, Paul offers us a word here that, that begins with, really a posture for prayer. Really this, this understanding and this idea that, that, that in prayer we, we radically beg, we entreat God. See, it's amazing that when he begins this discussion on what it's like to pray for other people, and he uses this word supplication, he's not talking about somebody standing in front of people with a posture that is upright and standing before God, but what he's talking about is, man, getting down on your hands and knees and then bowing your head. Before God. What he's talking about is taking this posture that's so humble. Taking this posture that that really just, it's hard to be proud when you're on your knees, is it not? It's hard to to be proud. It's hard to to be bold. And it's hard to be a whole lot of yourself when you're on your knees. Paul tells us that for everybody, for, for everyone. Not just those inside your friend group. But that we take this posture of humility, that we take this posture that recognizes that we offer nothing. But that God offers everything. So we offer supplications for all people. Next, Paul uses the most general word, and this occurs 37 times in the New Testament. He uses the word prayers. He says, first, then I, 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 I urge you, I, I command you that you get on your knees, that you beg, that you plead with God for everybody. He says, secondly, I, I, I urge, I command that you go before God, that you have conversations with God. This isn't just you talking, telling him about your day, well, God, this morning I woke up and... I just knew it was going to be a bad hair day. I mean, it's high humidity out there. So I, yeah, I didn't know what to do. I just used a lot of mousse. And, well, I was, you know, God, I, I hadn't gone by the grocery store, and so I was, I was out of mousse. And, 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 God, then I just knew I was going to be late to work because I couldn't show up with my hair all frizzy like this. I mean, look at it, God. I mean, that's just silly. And so prayer is this, this intimate, intimate conversation. You see, but it's not something that we enter into like we're speaking to a friend. And I've heard a lot of people define prayer like this. They say, you know, prayer with God should really be just like you're talking to your friends. And you're like, hey God, what's up man, how are you today? And it's just very casually, very flippant as we address God. You see, on the one hand, on the one sense that that God is completely at peace with us because of the blood of Jesus, but on the other hand, man, he is the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of all life. He holds time and the spin of the earth and gravity. He holds all of these things in his hand. Man, he's he's not your buddy. See, he's not this guy that you hang out and you shoot pool with and and maybe you, you sit around and you sip sweet, sip sweet tea with and watch the grandkids play. He's the creator God of everything. He's the author of salvation. So when we approach God in conversation, see, we're not couching our language and seeking to use rhetoric, which, which gives the guise of being holy, which is, gives the guise of being pious. And so we get out our best 17th century dictionary and we say, Oh, heavenly, most gracious, Synonym, synonym, synonym. And reverent, ah, wrong one. Father. See, but it is this heart posture that begins with a recognition that we bring nothing to the equation, that God brings everything, and it is a conversation that is transformative in nature. Because it's not just us laying this litany and all of these things before God, but it is us waiting on God to respond. It is us waiting to hear how God would lead us through the truth of His Word. It is waiting for us to see how God would transform our lives and make us more and more into a reflection of His Son. Next, and and probably most interestingly for the Ephesians, was when Paul told them to offer intercessions. You see, up to this point, he had told them, He said, I want you to beg and I want you to plead on behalf of everybody. I want you to talk to God about everybody. But now he said, I want you to insert yourself and your request between them and God. Between them and the circumstances of their lives. I want you to have in your mind all of these other people that, that you come into contact with in your community, that you see on the street, and what I want you to do is intercede for them. See, what Paul was asking them to do was to go to God and say, God, there are things that I cannot do for this person. God, would you move and do this in so-and-so's life? God, as I drove up Wesley, the other day, I saw this man on the side of the road. He had a sign that said, we'll work for food. God, would you move in his life to intercede? God, would you move in his life to change his circumstance? Would you help him to see that he hungers for things that perish? Would you help him to see that what he needs isn't one more meal, but what he needs is a saving relationship with your son? You see, that calls us to something. see, that calls us to something. If we would ask God to intercede into the lives of others, there's this, there's this dangerous chance that God's going to say, man, I will intercede. And you know what? I'm so happy that you're going to be my first volunteer. So you're going you're gonna to take this message, you're going to take your money, you're going to take your time, and you're going you're gonna to work to be my agent here on earth accomplishing my purpose. You're know, like, what? On the knees thing, man, I was humble. I was conversing with you. We had this real rapport. And, 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 and I recognized the need. God, I'm a selfish person, so that's a good thing. But you want me to be involved in his life? Oh, Father, where art thou? I search the heavens for thine voice. And God's just like, I, man, I I've told you. I told you all through James to be charitable told you my son seek out the least I've told you over and over again in my word that this is what you're supposed to be you're supposed to be my missionaries on this world in this town in your offices in your schools man on on facebook when you when you're writing a post on twitter when you're blasting something out on instagram so being a Christian it should transform the way that we communicate in every medium. It's not something that's just localized when, we, when we're uncomfortably faced with having a one on one conversation with somebody. It's absolutely every way we communicate. And he tells us that, that we're to pray for the intercession. And then Paul ends with the greatest he says, offering thanksgiving. Man, this is a clue to us that we need to wait around to see what God is up to. And when we see God moving, when we see God bringing about change, when we see God bringing about results, we resound in thanksgiving. We resound in praise. We resound in a recognition that is vocalized that God did this. And we offer him thanksgiving for his action in those people's lives. Now, it's one thing to ask someone to pray for just some random individual, somebody outside of their sphere of influence. Now, what Paul does here next is he asks them to pray for kings and all those in power in high positions. Now, for us, we have this, this very calm, this very sanitized democracy. I mean we, we get to to vote for people. We get to, to cast votes. Now the person we want to win does not always win. And sometimes the person that wins a couple years later, we wish they hadn't won. But but when he writes to these people in Ephesus, they didn't vote on the emperor. They didn't choose the person that the emperor sent there to be to be king over them, to be lord over them. They didn't, there's no formal process where they can send a letter and be like, look, Nero. Words getting around, you're not a great guy, you're using Christians like candles. Not cool. Just please don't do that anymore. I mean, <clears throat> there's no system set up whereby they can lodge a complaint. And they are actively being persecuted. Man, they're, they're actively being persecuted. And here Paul has the audacity to suggest to them, to command them to pray, not just for this this wide variety of people, but to pray specifically for kings and all who are in high positions. You think God's not concerned that we pray for our president? You think God's not concerned that we pray for those legislators who have different opinions than we do? Man, he is asking them to pray for somebody who is, who is diametrically opposed to their way of life and their very existence. If it had been in the power and the ability for the Roman Empire to squash Christianity, to obliterate it, to wipe it out, and make it just a blip on the pages of history, they would have loved to do so. But they weren't waging with man, they were waging with God. You see, and God instructs them and he instructs us to pray for our leadership, to pray for those that he has placed in power. You see, but there's a benefit there. There's a benefit there. Just for them as well for us, he says, pray for them that, they may, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life. He says, look, when you find yourself engaged in prayer for all those around you, it transforms your community. When you find yourself engaged in prayer for the kings and for all those in authority, it transforms the world. He says, and this is what it means for us. It means that we can live a quiet and a peaceful life. You see, they're not just praying that, that suffering would stop, just saying, oh, you know, God, that's not a problem. I, I, I pray that Nero would die, that some other emperor would take over, and that things would be better for me, that persecutions would stop for me. Instead, what they're praying for is for the peace of the Roman Empire. What they're praying for is stability in their country. What they're paying, praying for is that these things, these strivings and these wars would cease so that their lives would be able to live in a regular pattern of existence so that the Gospel might be proclaimed more rapidly. He says that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life. That both inside us internally we might experience peace and externally we might recognize and see peace. That God would bring peace through the cessation of violence and persecution. And he says that we may be godly and dignified in every way. You see, in the midst of <clears throat> this quiet and peaceful existence, they didn't just get to advance their own agenda. They didn't get to do just the things that they wanted to do. But, but the way Paul writes it here is that in the midst of this, in the midst of this quiet and peaceful existence, that they are to live a godly and a dignified life. Now, godly is, is not something that, that is primarily set up for those around them To inspect. What Paul tells them is that you should live a godly life. man. You should live a pious, a holy, a righteous life. You'll remember that Hymenaeus and Alexander at the end of chapter 1 are among those who have rejected a good conscience. They've rejected what it is to consider that that it's important, that it's a mandate that we should live holy lives. They've rejected that. They've they've just out of hand tossed that to the side and said that's not really all that important. God's not really captivated with that. Paul comes back to it here once more and says you need to live a godly life. Man, that God is concerned with your conversations. That God is concerned with the company that you keep. That God is concerned with your thought life. With the way you spend your time. You see... Just as we have the proclivity of putting our friend groups into a sphere that they're able to control, so too we put God into a sphere that he is able to have sway over, that he's able to exercise power and authority over. God looks at that and says, isn't that cute? That's a novel concept. Friend, did you ever realize that you're the one in the sphere, that God exists all around you, that he inspects every hidden thought those things that your most trusted confidant, that your spouse, that your children, that the NSA doesn't even know about you. God knows everything about you. God knows absolutely everything about you. And he tells you to be godly. He tells you to pursue godliness. And then some of the same ideas we hit on last week in reading that passage from 1 Peter. He says, dignified in every way. You see, the reality of their situation was that persecutions would increase. That many of their leaders would be put to death. That their very way of life and existence would be challenged every time they entered the marketplace. That for the Roman Empire, when they looked at the Christians, they, they assumed, and, and interestingly enough, they considered them to be atheists. And said, why do you only believe in in one God when we have this great system of gods? And so they considered the Christians to be atheists. But for the Christian, the call is to live a dignified life, to live a life worthy of respect, that those that we encounter in our workplace would know us to be truthful, that those we encounter in the marketplace would know us to be honorable, that those we encounter at family reunions That our lives would give evidence of the testimony of a transforming power of the gospel. Do you see that? And then he offers this summary, verse three. He says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. He says, This idea that that you are to be engaged in prayer for everybody, that you're to offer these types of requests before God for all men. Man, these things please. God, that this manner of life would resound in you. These things are pleasing to God. you want to know how to please God? Do this. These things are pleasing in the eyes of God. He says God is our Savior. God is the author of salvation. And then Paul begins to to wax eloquent a little bit, and he offers us some, some theology that if we take it in, not in the abstract, but if we take it in, it could transform our very understanding of who God is. Paul writes and he says, it is God who desires all people to be saved. You see, up to this point, somehow the Ephesians had gotten it wrong, or a small group of them had anyway. You'll remember that this is a group of people that Paul actually was personally there. He invested himself, he invested his ministry, but somehow they've managed to move away from from what is germane to his teaching. They've managed to move away from the main thrust of the gospel that is Jesus came, he lived, he died, he offers forgiveness of sins for who? For all. For absolutely everyone. And so Paul writes to them and he says, it is God's desire that all be saved says, look I first of all I instruct you to pray for everyone why am I asking you to pray for everybody because the heartbeat of God is that all men that all women that all children that all grandparents that all white people black people Hispanic people red yellow you know green and white people everybody be saved that is that's the heartbeat of God that all of humanity would come to know him you know it's not just for us it's not just for the people that look for like us, it's not just the people that will come to RBC. In this town, it's for all Methodists, it's for all Baptists, it's for all Presbyterians, it's for all people that attend the E-Free Church, it is for everyone in this town, in this community, in Hunt County, today drawing breath. This gospel transcends everything, and it is for everyone. It is for everyone. It's God's desire that they would all come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul in Galatians and elsewhere speaks of this truth as being the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ entered into time having one foot in eternity and one foot in time. He entered in, he took the very flesh of man and he died at the hands of his creation. That he offered himself as a sacrifice. This is what God desires that we all come to know. And that man, if you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, this is the truth you hold on to. But as we sit here, as we sit here and hold on to these things, it becomes evident that this isn't a truth that's exclusive to us. But this is a truth that has to be communicated. See, Paul lets us see that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The Ephesians, being a people that, that swing widely one way or the other, Paul offers this understanding that the truth isn't just what you make of it, that Jesus can't be put in any, any way that, that he's most palatable to you, that God can't be, can't be set up to be just who you want him to be, your particular creation of a God, because that is idolatry, that is not worship. And so he offers us, again, this trip to see the Shema, this Deuteronomy 6-4 idea that in verse 5 he says, for there is one God. He says, look, you guys live in a city that is surrounded by idols. You live in a city that people think they can be saved by a variety of ways. By, By giving to the temple, by sending out a a city contract by doing all of these things. As he writes to the Ephesians, they had a, a wide variety of understandings of how they might be saved, how they might please their particular deity, how they might satisfy the God in their own conception. But he writes and he says, but there is one God. He said, you guys were right to be exclusive in one sense because there is only one God. And he says, in this one God, he says, he sent his son. Continuing in verse 5, he said, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, Paul lays, lays the entry to heaven wide open, and he says, pray for all. God desires all to be saved. And then he says, but there's one God. And then he says further, he says, and there's one mediator, Jesus. And he's restricting access. You see, he, he, he lays out and he says, all are welcome, but we know that few will come. And he says, if you want to come, you need to understand there's one God. If you want to come, you need to understand there is one way to be saved. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus is the mediator between God and God. And men Jesus is the mediator between God and men. now, when we see that word mediator, we start to think or at least I do in my mind, and maybe you're a better person you probably are than I am and I think that we have two parties all right so on this on this side we have we have us and and on on this side over here we have God, okay, and so when we think of mediation, we think of it in terms of of how we most commonly see it practiced in our day-to-day lives, where we have a party on this side, party A, and then we have party B on this side, okay? And there's some mediator between them. They're helping them come to a solid understanding, some type of contractual agreement where they can both be mutually likely dissatisfied with the outcome, but they're helping them come to some type of agreement. And so party A has, has something over here that, that party B wants, And he's holding on to it, and this is his good chip to play, man. I mean, this is the thing that he's like, if I'm going to secure this deal. And what he doesn't, what this guy over there, what this guy doesn't realize is that I'm totally willing to give this up. But I'm going to act like it's the greatest thing in the world. So the mediator comes over, and person A says, okay, hey, look, tell him my grandmother gave this land to me. My family sweat and and bled and, and all these things, and tell him... This land's been in my family for 50 generations, and, but I'm willing to give it up if he'll give me five, <sighs> a paltry sum of $5 million. And so he goes over and he says, hey, look, guy said, you know, family land, all this good stuff, $5 million. And what guy in party A is hoping is that guy over here says, oh, man, I, I should really up the ante. I mean, because he's giving me so much. But the mediator is just is go-between, he's trying to help these guys broker a deal, when we think of of Jesus being the mediator between us and God we we see us over here and we see see God on the far side and and when when Christ comes to us our temptation is to look at it and say I've got all this good stuff I mean I I, I care for my grandmother I give to the church I'm I'm kind to people I don't park in the front row I park way in the back so everybody else can have those spots we start thinking of all the, all the assets in our lives, all the good things that we've ever done, and we, and we tell all those to Jesus when he comes to us and he says, Hey, look, there's a rift between you and God. Sin has separated you and God. You say, Oh, Jesus, I'm not like the other people. There really is something inherently good in me. So let's just say Jesus takes that message and goes back over to God and he says, Hey, look. I talked to Matt. He said, there actually is something good in him. What do you think? God says, I'm sorry. That wasn't a joke. Let me try that again. So Jesus comes back over. He says, let me tell you about Valerie. There actually is something good in her. That's a hearty laugh. And God says, I'm sorry. I demand absolute 100% perfection. Jesus comes back over. He says, hey, look, this is the deal. I know you've got all these things you think are good. I know you've got all these things that you think that you did. And, and Even people in your community look at you and say, man, this is an upright guy. This, this person has such a great standing in our community. They give unselfishly. They, they bring in people. They adopt people from the community. They are the most giving person I could ever imagine. Jesus says, look, I understand that's what people say about you, But God demands perfection. But God demands perfection. And this mediator, this one who's who's carrying the message of God to us, who's communicating to God on our behalf, verse 6 tells us that he gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. That before the foundations of the world, that God knew he would send his son to die for sinful man. That man in all his, his seeming goodness, that man in all his inability to overcome sin, that God would send his son to intercede, to die on behalf of him. So that when Jesus goes to God, he says, let me tell you about mad, He's not talking about my goodness. He's talking about the imputed goodness, the goodness I have received after accepting the sacrifice of Christ. You see, because there's nothing I can do. There's no way I can overcome sin. There's no way you can overcome sin. There's nothing good enough in you. There's nothing redeemable in you. But God sent His Son to serve as a ransom, to pay for all the sin that you would commit. And He did that for all men. And it is a testimony given at the proper time. See, Paul is destroying their understanding that God is just for them. He's destroying their understanding that, that God is exclusive to them and their understanding of how he does things. And then he finishes in verse 7 and he says, For this, for this understanding of the gospel, for this understanding that God died for all, for this understanding that you are to pray for all, for this understanding that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. For this, I was appointed by God a preacher and one who is to carry the message. And then to drive home the point a little further to the Ephesians, he says, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. And to highlight this fact, he said, and I am a teacher of the Gentiles. I'm here to teach this group that you didn't think was worthy of the gospel. And I'm here to do it in faith and truth. You see, for us, one of the things we've got to realize is that God isn't just the God of the Baptists. It's not just the God of of Ridgecrest. That God is at work calling all people to Himself. And God has highly entrusted us to be missionaries. God has highly called us to be communicators of the gospel. And as I read and, and meditated and prayed over this passage this week, I came away with this. And this one hurts. If we don't communicate that message, if we don't communicate that message that he died for all, if we don't take seriously his call to pray for all, then we look at the body, then we look at the blood of Christ. And we spit on it. We disgrace it. We take it completely out of hand. We say it's worthless. Because if it's not good enough for all, if in our minds, if it's, if it's not something that is worthy to be shared with all, if it's not something that we have a deep sense and desire to communicate to all, then we completely don't understand it. Then we completely missed it. Paul's desire was that the Ephesians come to an understanding and knowledge that God had died for all. That the invitation to salvation is extended to all in the proper parameters. That there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ, the man who came, the God who came as man and offered himself on the cross as an invitation to know God in a real and a saving way. Let me pray for us.